You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 25th of January. And on the show today, we had a hot topic. We were discussing the soaring popularity of home security cameras and how we feel about being watched by our neighbour's doorbell. Really big topic and lots of people got in touch to give us their input. But we also spoke to two experts on the matter. Home security expert Amir Matazai, he told us how the devices work and we discussed the laws surrounding surveillance. That was with Manir Subo, who is a legal expert on tech and privacy. Meanwhile, Barbie Gate is gathering increasing column inches. Ryan Gosling's up for an Oscar, but his Barbie, Margot Robbie, and his director, Greta Gerwig, have both missed out. Is that sexism? We asked our resident film buff, William Mullally. Meanwhile, COVID and measles cases are soaring around the world. So what is causing the problem? And is it something we need to worry about here in the UAE? Questions that we asked Dr. Howard Podolsky. Plus, viruses trapped in the Arctic permafrost for centuries could now start to infect people once again. Sounds scary? Well, apparently you should be. That's according to Professor Jean-Michel Clavery, who explained why global warming is to blame. Plus, most new cars being sold now are bigger than the standard parking place. Naz Chowdhury, the founder of We Cash Any Car, explained why many of us, when it comes to cars, think bigger is better. Plus, Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines, both on and off the pitch. Hello there. Welcome back to the Agenda programme. Right, we're discussing home security on the show today, partly because of something that's been going on in my own community. Basically, loads of people have got these doorbells that record their doorstep. Um, I don't know why they have them. Quite genuinely, I actually don't know why they have them. Why do you need to record what's going on on your doorbell? Just because you can, should you? Um, Anyway, what happened well, there's two ways in which it's come into my life. First of all, there was poop gate in the compound. Um, apparently, somebody was letting their dog poop on somebody else's lawn, or perhaps there were multiple culprits. And um, the way it was resolved was that somebody got a security camera and they recorded the dog and then showed the evidence to their neighbour. I, I don't know about you, but that feels a bit weird within a community, doesn't it? Is it just me? Am I old-fashioned? And then the other incident actually involved not just my children, but quite a lot of the children in the compound. They were being naughty. They were running around. It's a game that they play, which they shouldn't play. It's called Ding Dong Ditch. The idea is that you ring a doorbell and then you run away and essentially, you know, you snigger in a bush while the sort of bemused householder opens the door and can't see them. I was one of the targets, needless to say. Um, But... I asked my children, you know, the security guard came around and said the children are doing it. And I said, OK, well, I'll ask them. They swore blind. They weren't doing it. <laughs> they lied to me. Um, and the reason why I found out that they'd lied to me is because one of my neighbours, who they'd rung their doorbell, sent me the video of my children doing it. And again, that felt like a... I don't know. It just felt like a real invasion of privacy. Yes, the children are being naughty. Yes, my goodness me, they got a ticking off. But should we be recording each other? Doesn't that show a bit of a breakdown in trust? I don't know. It, it, for me, it's a big deal. 
Maybe for you it's not. Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. 4001. Or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 I just wonder what, what stage we've got to in our communities when we're having to record our neighbours. You know, with that suspicious. Lots of people on the text line I, I already thoroughly disagreeing with me. Uh, Phil says the bell camera works when it's triggered. If you don't want to be recorded, don't misbehave. Uh, another person here says it's not surveillance if it's done on your premises. It's called security. As long as cameras aren't pointed into public areas, I don't see a problem. Another person particularly cross with me this morning says uh, you should be thanking your neighbours for letting you know your kids are not the well-behaved children you thought they were. Uh, like so many who think that their children wouldn't hurt a fly. Now you are a better parent. Am I? <laughs> Am I really? A better parent? Because I've seen a video of my child ringing a doorbell. Am I? Um, let's find out uh, a little bit more about the prevalence of these cameras. Uh, I'm joined on the line now by an expert, Amir Morteza. He's the founder and managing partner at Cormentis UAE. Uh, Amir, fantastic to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you with us. Now, we looked into this subject a bit on the agenda. Um, and as we suspected, the, ho- the use of these home security devices really is increasing exponentially. Uh, apparently, it's going to go up to, it's, it's increasing by 83% over a five-year period up to 2027. And they reckon that 180 or roundabout, 180 million households will have these devices um, by the end of 2027. Is that something that plays into what you've seen here in the UAE? Yes, yes, it does. There's an increasing number of uh, players in the market. There's an increasing number of brands coming into UAE. And and because of uh, new number of people moving into the UAE itself is uh, opportunity to sell more cameras and surveillance equipment, CCTV or smart cameras. So what specific devices are people going for? And is that is, is their ease of use one of the reasons why I, they're proliferating? So there are different types of cameras. There is a CCTV camera, which is closed-circuit TV monitoring systems. These are generally used for uh, large-scale factories, malls, hotels, hospitality. Um, then there is smart cameras. And these cameras are internet-based cameras, um, which provide uh, recording facilities, motion sensor, um, zoning of a certain area, and monitoring that area, and so on and so forth. So why do you think they are becoming more popular? Do you think it's because they're easy, you know, they're really easy to use? Or do you think that people are actually getting more nervous about their security? I've always thought of the UAE as an incredibly safe place, but are people yes. nevertheless getting a bit more insecure? Um, uh, first and foremost, UAE is uh, a very safe place. Uh, that's for sure. But the fact is that these cameras are now cheaper and we're kind of being um, influenced a lot by what's happening in, uh, in in US, predominantly the market where there's a lot of monitoring systems and security services. Um, obviously, these cameras are much easier to use nowadays. Unfortunately, what happens is that because um, the uh, manufacturing, the different brands have increased, um, there is very little informa- uh, information about the 
camera recordings and where they are hosted. Generally, these are hosted on a cloud service outside UAE. Um, and at the same time, the manufacturer of the camera and the provider of the service itself for the recording, uh, they're not really vetted uh, in sense of uh, um, safety and following the standards and ensuring that the you know, customers' uh, personal information and video recordings are kept safe. So, for example, uh, Phil wrote in saying, look, the bell camera only works when it's triggered. If you don't go on someone's doorstep, then it's not going to start recording you. Is that, for the most part, true? Or are there some devices in people's homes looking outward that are constantly recording? So if you just walk past their house, you might be recorded in that context. It depends on the brand that we are talking about. Uh, for the most part, if we are referring to uh, the doorbells, yes, there is a triggering mechanism, which is essentially the button when you press the recording technically should start. However, the same camera, the doorbells, offer the opportunity to have a full-on um, video recording. It means that it's continuously recording and only after pressing, uh, it kind of saves the recording. But the problem is the following. The user uh, or the customer, who, the homeowner who has the camera might not know that the camera is actually being manipulated remotely and is recording on a continuous basis. Wow. So who would want to do that? Who would want to sort of hack into your doorbell and use it as a sort of permanent recording device? There is, um, I, I wouldn't know in Exactly, but obviously, uh, people with malintentions. Yeah. They are. Uh, there are a significant number of trolls out there in the internet. In the internet, there are in fact websites where you can go in and see the the uh, uh, video feeds from thousands and thousands of cameras around the world, which are being hacked and being publicly uh, this is shown uh, without the owner actually knowing that this is happening. You see. Now I'm even more concerned. Um, I just felt it was a simple sort of privacy question that I felt a bit weird that when I go for my nightly walks around my compound to try and increase my steps that I'm being watched by a million doorbells. Now I'm worried that I'm being watched by somebody else somewhere around the world who's got a weird thing about women walking around in the dark uh, in their compounds. Um, I mean, when it comes to security here in the UAE, do you think that it's increasing faster than in other countries or slower? It's, I wouldn't say it's increasing faster. Uh, it would be the same pace, but we have to consider there's an influx of new people moving into UAE. And obviously when there's places are more crowded, the opportunity for criminal organizations and criminality goes up. So therefore there is a influx in people wanting to feel safe. But the problem is the following. The UAE is already extremely safe and there is very little uh, crime rate, specifically the small petty crimes, which is breaking in and so on. Um, so in my opinion, it's an overstep of going, you know, uh, trying to be extra vigilant. Uh, if it was in Europe or it was in the US, yes, I would understand it. Uh, lifestyles are different. Laws are different in other countries. But in the Middle East and in UAE, I don't think it's necessary. 
Really interesting stuff. Amir, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Uh, we have started a serious conversation on the text lines. Loads and loads of people texting in. Very interesting indeed. We're going to get to those comments in a minute. But Amir Mortaize, founder and managing partner at Cormentis UAE. Thank you very much indeed for your time this morning. Um, here we go. Let's get through these messages. There's so many that have come through. Wayne says, uh, when it comes to security cameras, ultimately, once you trespass on onto a private property, especially with malicious intent, you give up your right to privacy. Wayne, I agree with you on that. But what about within my community? You know, I'm walking around. It's sort of like a cul-de-sac. You know, what if these doorbells are just recording me as I walk past? You know, I'm, I have a total right to be in that community. What if I don't want to be watched? Um, somebody else has written in saying, reality, there are cameras all over cities. So get used to it. They're vital. Um, and in fact, this person said, my mother-in-law was actually once broken into and robbed. A camera would have seen them. And in that consequence, you know, obviously it would have made it easier for them to be caught. MN has got in touch saying, to be honest, the security cameras are everywhere. What I find absolutely annoying is when a bunch of teenagers sit near you in a compact place like Metro or Plane and make a TikTok recording. Happened to me twice and they fumed when I requested them to avoid getting me in their reel. Oh, I understand that. That is more about sort of being recording against your will. I totally understand that as well, MN. Um, Thank you for getting in touch. Up next, we're going to talk to a lawyer because I want to know if I've got a legal leg to stand on when it comes to being recorded by doorbells. Um, And I want to get into the details of this sort of new surveillance culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, Please do keep your messages coming, though. I am loving the fury. Uh, Cam's got in touch saying uh, when it comes to security cameras, we just need to get used to it. They're all over the place. It helps with safety and security. Finn's getting in touch saying if people were honest, we wouldn't need them. But sadly, people don't pick up their dog's mess and they steal or damage other people's property, etc. That's from Finn, who suggests that Basically, the security cameras are helping out. So far, no one is agreeing with me that it's creepy and wrong. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Good to have you with us. We are talking about the rise in home security on the programme this morning. Uh, As it turns out, that the use of these sort of doorbell cameras and other cameras are soaring in popularity. Do you have one? You know, one of those doorbells that sort of records your doorstep, for example? Well, apparently you're not alone. The global number of households set to use these smart security cameras is forecast to continuously increase between now and 27. And over that five-year period, it's going to go up by 83% to 180 million households. But what are the rules around their use? I've already said quite a bit on the radio about how I think they're a bit creepy. I think it means that you end up surveilling your community. And I really question whether or not they're necessary. Um, And I want to find out, obviously, there's quite strict rules in this country about recording people without their will. So we decided to get a lawyer in the studio to find out more. And that lawyer is here. Uh, His name is Munir Sobo. He is a lawyer in IP, media, trademarks, copyright, cybersecurity and technology in the Middle East. And he works with Taylor Wessing. Uh, And as a consequence, you are very well qualified to discuss this, Munir. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you for having me today. Lovely to have you here. Okay, so if someone records me with their doorbell, is it illegal? Please say yes. <laughs> yes and no. Okay. <laughs> and this is the thing that we really uh, struggle to um, to identify. There's a fine line between what you can use and what you cannot use and how you use this recording. Now, the cameras are there for a purpose. 
And that purpose is very clear to make sure it's called a security camera, CCTV camera. You, you make sure that you are able to produce evidence when it's needed if there is any violation of your rights. And if it's your own property, your own villa, your house, you have the full right to have that. That's why you have it as a licensed business and the products are absolutely um, uh, acceptable for being uh, used and installed by the households. How you use the content there is the question. And that's going to trigger hundreds of questions, depends on the cases, the situation, the crime scene. Um, if someone, as you've just mentioned, it, walking in the community, they definitely have the full rights not to be uh, uh, pictures or reproduced in terms of the way that uh, that could damage their interest or cause any um, harm for their, for their rights. Um, it's interesting, yep. though, because there yep. does seem to be a slight grey area there. Yep. Yep. So, for example, if I'm walking around my community and being recorded by these doorbells, mm -hmm. even if they don't share that data anyway, I don't want to be recorded. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm within I mean, my private community. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and the law is, is, is trying to improve. If, if you look at the law that the penal code that was even enacted maybe three, four decades ago in the UAE, it made it clear that no one, their privacy rights should be always preserved in your private place, in your private uh, situations. You don't really have any uh, reasons to have this compromised. The, mm. the question and the exception that we have there, if you are in a public place, your consent is actually implied unless it's, it's and if you are aware of that filming and if you are aware of that picturing, uh, your consent to be pictured is, is, is something that could be implied. So if you are in a stadium, if you are in a public performance, you should be assumed to be uh, pictured. Now, how this get used or reproduced is the other question. And that's where we will have um, a lot of gray areas to decide mm -hmm. on case by case basis. And again, adult versus minors versus juveniles, it's always varies. And, and, and the laws and the lead, leg, legislator in the UAE, when they look at the laws, they try to move dynamically with all the changes and all the demands of the society. We need to be aware. We are in the UAE. We live with, with more than 180 nationalities. Each nationality, each family, each person come with a different background, different perspective. Some of them, they don't expect any type of privacy invasions. They're, they're, their rights are always reserved. Uh, others, they could accept the fact that they could be pictures and filmed and their, their, their image can be reproduced online or on, on any content. So, and the law, when it came, it just tried to make sure that the purpose of these CCTV cameras or any type of picturing of individuals um, and all the cameras that we see in the cities, we, I heard some of these comments saying we are in a city that is um, uh, filled with cameras and the streets and the main public areas. Yes, that's true. And that's part of the investments we have in this country to improve the security, to improve the ability to make sure people live in safe and, and we are blessed. We are living in a place that is probably one of the most secure places on this earth. But to misuse this content is something that is absolutely um, unacceptable. And the cyber crime law that was enacted in 2021 made it very clear misusing or reproducing any uh, individual picture or images without their consent could possibly take you for a public prosecution formalities and you could be criminally prosecuted especially if that will create some damage or, or, or uh, some um, undermining of their rights. And, and, and the law is very clear on that. Um, and you should not assume that you are able to reproduce this content, whether online or for any third parties.
Manir, I'm going to keep you with us, if that's okay. We've got to go to the news now, but if I could keep you over the news, because there's quite a few sort of questions coming in, and I certainly got quite a lot of questions as well. Because, of course, it's one thing if a crime is committed. Mm -hmm. So if I go to my neighbour's house Mm -hmm. and I steal their Amazon Mm -hmm. package, Mm -hmm. I think, oh, that looks nice. (laughs) Big box. Wonder what's in it. And I steal that box. And I get filmed by their doorbell camera and they report that to the police. Fair dues. I've stolen your box. Is it a crime as a child, to ring a doorbell and run away? And that's the question I'm going to get into. There is a division between bad Mm behaviour and naughtiness and childlike Mm behaviour and all the other various myriad of things that your doorbell might record and criminal activity. Hello there and welcome back to the agenda. So we are discussing home security on the programme today, uh, partly because there does seem to be a huge proliferation of people having their own sort of home recording devices. They're often connected to doorbells. And actually, if you haven't been listening earlier in the programme, you might not have heard, but um, it actually happened in our community that people were using their doorbells to record, for example, we're calling it poop gate, um, dogs using their front lawns as lavatories. And also to record children playing a game called Ding Dong Ditch, which is when they ring a doorbell and then they run away. Um, My children, for example, were caught on camera doing exactly this. And it was really... My emotions around it were really interesting. Obviously, I was deeply embarrassed because I denied my children were involved. Um, But I also felt that their privacy had been invaded by this recording, Um, which I know is a bit of a conflict of emotions. And maybe it was just because it was my boys, one boy. But but still, I, I stand by it. I don't think children playing a prank should... I just don't think they should be recorded. I don't think we should be surveilled within our communities, personally. But we're going to get into the conversation. um, And we've got a lawyer in the studio with us. Manir Sobo is um, an expert in this field, uh, especially in the Middle East market for Taylor Wessing. Thank you very much for staying with us, Manir. Lovely to have you here. Likewise. Um, okay, so for example, I'm going to play you a recording now. Um, so far, by the way, no one has agreed with me that it's a bit weird to have your doorbell recording your neighbours. No, no one agrees yet. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I'm happy to be the only person, but surely there's someone who would feel weird about their neighbours recording them on their doorbell, maybe, even if they're just going about their normal business. Apparently not, but feel free to get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Just to show I am partisan on this matter, Uh, Laura got in touch with us with her story. She's actually moved from Dubai to London just recently. And she has one of those ring doorbells. And it actually proved very useful recently. The guys opposite us got broken into and the police came and asked for the video content because they saw we had a ring doorbell camera. So I don't know whether that supported them finding the perpetrator or not, or, or anyway, providing evidence. And then with us... Package theft, um, we captured the guy that nicked deliveries from outside our door. That's fairly rife now. That's become increasingly apparent on our neighbourhood little group that we are a part of. In all likelihood, whatever you order is going to be stolen, which is a pretty sad state of affairs. So the only option now is Amazon lockers in London. So, yeah, it is a problem in London. Less of a problem, I think, here in the UAE. Manir, now, if you did record someone taking a package from your doorstep, would it be admissible as evidence here? Yes, in coordination with law enforcement agency, with their police or uh, before the public prosecutor, so long as this is within your property and the cameras are there and they found those materials are admissible, they can be used as evidence to support 
the proceedings and the prosecution formalities. What if your camera just records bad behaviour? So not criminal behaviour, but bad behaviour. For example, children ringing doorbells naughtily and dogs pooping on lawns. Well, well, funny you mentioned that this is bad behaviours, but at some point this could be actually a crime if you are disturbing the public public, um, uh, um, safety or public comfort. This could be by itself uh, subject to prosecution. Now, whether the police will prosecute it, will, will open a crime, um, will open um, a, a, an investigation on that and, and, and put evidence together and send it to the public prosecutor, this is another question. What normally happens in this situation, if there is something that has really bothered you as, as a household and there are a few incidents repeated by the same people and you have evidences on that, you have the full right to call the police. You don't have the right to commit a crime by republishing these kids' images and whatever behaviors are doing and circulate it around your community. That's that's a that's a wrong. There are two two wrong, two wrongs does not make things right. I mean, you have a right to react. You have the right to go out and stop them from doing it if they are still there. You have the right to go and speak to them and call the support of the law enforcement or the police to come and step in. But do not go and cross the line and do a crime thinking that this is your rights, this is your content. It is your content. You have the right to produce it to support your safety, your situation, your status. But do not go and commit a crime. This is something can be always um, a trouble for you and for your um, uh, for, 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 for your legal interest. And especially if kids are involved, kids are really protected here. And we start to see more and more regulations on that. I mean, you'll be surprised even if you have a juvenile that is being prosecuted in a trial, in a public trial, if you go and take that content and reproduce it, this is something can uh, expose you for liability. You are not allowed to do that. We have the children law or Wadima law that is something was enacted in 2015-16, I think, in the UAE to add more the rights to the kids uh, and juveniles to make sure that they don't get socially um, undermined and they don't get into any position or any uh, materials that can expose them and expose their sanities. So all these things can expose any person who violated those rights to major sanctions, major penalties, can reach up to one million dirhams in some situation. It's not that simple. So the fact that there is no incidence, a lot of incidents on that, that does not make it um, um, a right uh, act to do. So. Um, Interesting stuff. My goodness me. I feel like this is a story that we could get into uh, in even more detail than we have. So I think we'll we'll touch on it again in the future. Uh, thank you, Cam, for your message saying by having kids knocking on someone's door and running away, it could be an older person with health issues and that could, could cause problems for that person. Very fair point there, Cam. Thanks very much for getting in touch. Somebody else has written in with a, maybe a touch of um, tongue in cheek. Big brother is watching you. Well, indeed they are. And I'm loving. Thank you very much to everyone who sent in their messages. I really appreciate you sending in your opinion. Manir Sobo, a Middle East market lawyer for Taylor Wessing, an expert in everything from cybersecurity to tech and trademarks, media and copyrights and IP. Thank you very much indeed for your it was time. Great. It was great. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, George. Yeah, it's been great to have you on the radio. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Lovely to have you listening. Keep your comments coming about home security, uh, particularly if you are the proud owner of one of these ring doorbells. Um, meanwhile, Barbie Gate is, is gathering increasing column inches. Uh, basically, Ryan Gosling, uh, he's Ken, uh, he's up for an Oscar, but his Barbie, Margot Robbie, and his director, director Greta Gerwig, have both missed out. 
Um, it goes something like this. I'll take a high-level, high-paying job with influence, please. Okay, you'll need at least an MBA, and a lot of our people have PhDs. Isn't being a man enough? Actually, right now, it's kind of the opposite. You guys are clearly not doing patriarchy very well. No, <laughs> no, we're, uh, we're doing it well. Yeah, we just uh, hide it better now. Oh. Is it a little bit like that? Let's find out. William Mullally, our resident film buff, has joined us on the line. Uh, William, I think, you know, it's fair to say that Barbie did get shortlisted in eight categories. So um, are they being a bit greedy, expecting to get one for Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig as well? I would go farther and say entitled. Ah, <laughs> you, uh, this is really interesting. You, you've come down on the, a different side to what I expected. Really? Yeah, I would have thought you'd be like, yes, it's outrageous. This is sexism. Clearly, just because it's a silly, frivolous, fun movie, it's not being taken seriously. I think I mean, it's gotten eight Oscar nominations. I think it's been taken very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, personally, Greta I thought it was... Nominated. I think it's dreadful. I don't think it deserves a single one, personally. But, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, I'm intrigued by this because Ryan Gosling's come out pretty hard saying that, you know, without... You know, without Ken, without Barbie, there would be no Ken. Uh, without Greta, there would be no film. He's not sure he should be up for one and they shouldn't be. I, uh, honestly, that statement is embarrassing to me. It's embarrassing that he felt he had to make it um, due to whatever social pressures. I've never seen someone be so upset that they did a good job. It doesn't really make any sense to me. But honestly, I mean, this is the case of all things. I mean, if you look at even Ryan being nominated, this is also Greta's brilliance in casting him, in fighting for him to do the role, in getting this performance out of him. She's nominated as in her producer role in Best Picture. She's nominated for, for her writing. Um, honestly, these people are very, you know, obviously um, with Margot, she's been nominated multiple times for multiple Oscars. BAFTAs, Golden Globes, these are very well-recognized people. And I do feel that this is a case of a fan entitlement when people look through blinders at one thing that they love, whether that's Barbie, whether that's you know Taylor Swift, not to, to pick any, anyone who's not a part of this. Um, but I think people look at Barbie and it's like, okay, here's the film I love. That thing deserves to get all, all, the, all the awards, all the box office, all the praise, and if anything gets in the way of that, then it must be some sort of agenda against that thing. And Ryan did not take this award away from Margot. There are five brilliant women, you know, people who are very esteemed in their, their field, like Annette Benning, people who are breaking legitimate ground. You know, the first um, Native American nominee in Lily Gladstone who's favored to win, as well as, I think, a broader look at how things are evolving internationally. You know, Anatomy of a Fall is here, when in, in years past, French films would never have gotten to this. So we have Sandra Huller in um, Best um, Actress. We have Justine Triette in Best Director. And these are amazing women who have done amazing things. And personally, I would say, you know, far more complex and interesting feminist films. And um, they don't seem to be getting the same sort of, you know, cheering from these same groups of people. So it just seems like there's there's blinders on, you know, here's the biggest film of the year and that deserves to get anything. And I'm going to refuse to recognize the achievements of other women. Greta Gerwig, as director, very hard for a woman to win an Oscar for Best Director. I think, I mean, you'll know far better than me, but I remember there was a big sort of a huge excitement when it did happen for maybe the first time. Do you think there could be sexism at play there? She's been nominated for Best Director before. Um, she's only directed four films. 
three of them have been nominated for for Academy Awards. She's been she was for Lady Bird. She got Best Director um, nomination, and I, I feel like she is. I don't think. I mean, obviously, there is a, a sex system within Hollywood. Women do not direct enough. Women do not get opportunities. They don't get the variance of opportunities that men get. There are still systemic problems that hold women back, especially when they want to make personal films. But in this case, we have Justine, who is has an amazing feminist film in Anatomy of a Fall, nominated here. We have four other brilliant, you know, amazing achievements um, from people like Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Glazer. In this case, I, I think because the film has been so well recognized, she was probably sixth on the list, and not everyone could be nominated. And when she's been so, I think, propped up by Hollywood all these years, I don't think she's the person that we should put the label of sexism on. There's plenty of amazing female filmmakers who have never been nominated, despite working for for decades. Um, and I, I think that's part of the problem. We, we we talk about you know women directors need to be getting more opportunities. But then people don't bother to look at how much talent is actually out there. Someone like Kelly Reichardt, who did an amazing film called Showing Up this year, got no love. And that is an incredibly personal um, film. You know, Sofia Coppola's, her film Priscilla, got zero love at the Oscars. Um, So I I do think that if people want to help lift up these these women voices, they need to be going out there and watching more women-led content. Because really, there are things besides Barbie that need that love. William Mullally, love having you on the radio. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and putting Barbie Gate in context. Uh, Really, really appreciate your time. Uh, William Mullally there, entertainment journalist and our resident film expert right here on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey there, welcome back to the agenda. Right, I suppose you could ask it happens every, you could say, argue, it happens every winter. Um, We get this sort of spike in COVID cases, but they really are rising quite sharply around the world at the moment. And it is due to yet another variant. Um, For example, so you don't think I'm sort of worry mongering. India has faced an 843% spike in cases. I'm going to qualify that because, man, that sounds like a lot. But that actually means 15,000 fresh infections. So obviously you're coming from a very low base and, you know. Anyway, meanwhile, the World Health Organization has issued a warning over the alarming spread of measles in Europe. Measles, how random is that? Um, There's been a a 45-fold increase in cases across the continent and... The sort of combination of those two made us think, this is interesting. Let's get into it. You know, do we need to be worried here in the UAE? Is it a cause for concern? Is there anything we can do? And to find out, we spoke to Dr. Howard Podolsky. Uh, He was a favourite on the Business Breakfast during COVID. Uh, Always a great guest. Uh, He's the group CEO for the Cambridge Medical and Rehabilitation Centre in Dubai. And we got him on the line again. And he said there is a good reason for the current COVID surge that we've been seeing, at least. The latest variant that seems to be highly contagious is something called JN1. And that seems to be spreading around the world. And that's the most prevalent of the strains currently causing the largest amount of infections at this point. But it's an old acquaintance, if you will. It goes back to its parent, which is the Omicron variant, which we all encountered starting in November of 2021. It's a direct descendant of Omicron. What makes it more contagious today is that it has about 30 odd 
new mutations that Omicron didn't have, which makes JN1 a rather slippery character and able to evade our immune systems better than Omicron did back in 2021. So that's that's sort of the downside or quote unquote bad news. The, the semi-positive news here is that there's no evidence to suggest that the severity of the infections with JN1 are any worse than any of the other infections that we've had with COVID or other variants of COVID previously. If anything, the infection should be somewhat less debilitating for most people because most of us have either had COVID at least once, most of us have been vaccinated numerous times, so our immune system is primed to be able to be more effective in fighting JN1. Yes, it might make us feel cruddy for a few days. In most cases, it's not going to be terribly severe, but of course, we do worry about those who are older, infirmed, who have chronic diseases, who are more susceptible to um, you know, uh, more severe cases of COVID because their immune systems aren't as robust as others. So is it something to be concerned about? Of course, infections are something to be concerned about. And COVID, obviously, we've had a longstanding relationship now with and, and have gone through a lot of turmoil. But it's no worse from what we can see than what we've encountered previously. And hospitalizations really are up only slightly worldwide. And that has to do with, again, the fact that we are affecting people who do have compromised immune systems. So they're going to be at a higher risk for more severe disease. But for the average individual, we'll deal with it as we've dealt with the others. It's really interesting that a vaccine booster hasn't really been introduced in any countries. I remember back when we were having boosters and we, you know, I can't remember how many injections I had now, I think three in total. And there was sort of a theory then that it would become like the flu vaccine. And every year, you know, at the beginning of winter, you'd potter off and have your vaccine for COVID. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Is there a reason for that? We do actually have newer vaccines available, say, for example, in the UAE and and throughout the world, the the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which has been re-engineered in the past six months to be more responsive to the JN1 variant. For example, so we are, you know, encouraging individuals to get a booster, at least on an annual basis. And what we anticipate is that every year, just like we do with the flu vaccine, Georgia, exactly what you said, we'll tweak the vaccines to what we think will be the most likely variants for COVID to give us a little bit added protection. It won't be perfect. There is no perfect vaccine for COVID, but it certainly is pretty darn good. So there there are Pfizer vaccines available that have an updated approach to managing these latest strains in a way that it's more effective than the older ones. Nonetheless, the older ones still gave us some pretty darn good protection. So is the reality that I am low risk? And as a consequence, no one said, oh, by the way, you probably ought to get this new booster. Yeah, I think that's the reality that on a low risk basis, we haven't been pushing out that information and haven't been promulgating vaccines as rigorously as we probably could have. And one might argue maybe should have, but certainly I would recommend it for people who are in good health, low risk to get the annual COVID vaccine when they get their annual flu vaccine. There's no reason why you can't do both together. Let's talk about the other much more, so shall we say, traditional disease that is doing the rounds. 
it's got particularly bad in the UK and it's measles. And of course, it's a disease that can be very easily vaccinated against. And I know that I was vaccinated against it as a child. I know that I vaccinated my children against it. And yeah. for some reason, it's starting to rear its ugly head again. It is. It is. In fact, over the past several years, there's been a 30-fold increase in the incidence and prevalence of measles in Europe and the UK. And we're seeing that not just there, but throughout the world. And that's troubling because it is a almost wholly preventable disease. The vaccine for measles is so effective, so much more effective than COVID, for example, that if we had every child, every person adequately vaccinated with the mandatory two vaccine dose, dosing scheme that we have in place, we could almost eradicate measles as a disease, but we haven't because we've had a breakdown in following through on vaccinations, especially the second vaccination that children are not getting as frequently as they used to get. Most children are still getting the first vaccine because it's often given shortly after birth or within the first year during those follow-up checkups with the pediatrician. But then there's been a drop-off on the second vaccine, which has left a lot of children a lot more vulnerable to measles. And measles generally, just like COVID, it's an airborne respiratory spread infection. And measles is generally a self-limited infection. And most kids and even adults who get it do just fine. But there is a small subsection of the population that doesn't do just fine. Measles can result in serious complications, including inflammation of the brain, causing encephalitis, seizures, blindness, deafness, serious complications. Thankfully, not common, but they can occur. And the sad part is that it is a wholly preventable disease because the vaccine is so, so effective. Do you think people are forgetting to go and get those updated vaccines? Or are we seeing the repercussions of an anti-vaxxer movement here? I think that's a great question. And I think it's a combination of both. I think that there's been a little bit of sort of a lackadaisical approach to vaccinations in general. And remember, during COVID, a lot of families had difficulty getting access to vaccines. And so a lot of families and children are playing catch up right now on their vaccines. That's part of it. But I do think that there is an undercurrent of an anti-vaxxer movement that's still out there. Unfortunately, misinformation continues to circulate oftentimes faster than actual truthful information, as you know. And people continue to buy into the misinformation, especially with the sad and grossly wrong linkage between the vaccines and autism, which unfortunately continues to be promulgated despite the fact that it's been wholly debunked for well more than a decade. So we know the vaccine's safe. We know that it really does a fantastic job of preventing our kids and adults from getting measles and we could eradicate the disease. We just need to really get everyone vaccinated and help proliferate the vaccine for everyone. That is Dr. Howard Podolsky. He's the group CEO for the Cambridge Medical and Rehabilitation Centre in Dubai with some fantastic medical advice there uh, with regards to COVID-19 and, of course, measles, both of which are spreading. You've got an awful lot of cases uh, around the rest of the world. We don't have any exact cases for here in the UAE, but are always worth keeping an eye on uh, sort of global infections because, of course, we're such a, a hub here. We're such a travel hub here in uh, the United Arab Emirates. 
that's coming up. Um, we don't want to scare you or anything, um, but there is the prospect of a zombie virus entering the community. Um, I mean, not with immediate effect, um, but certainly something that you you know you might want to add to your sort of bucket list of concerns, I suppose. Um, yep, coming up in the next few minutes, we will find out how global warming could cause zombie viruses to escape from the Arctic permafrost. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Lovely to have you with us. Um, I'm afraid I've got something slightly scary to tell you about now. I mean, you know, don't get unduly worried, but it does sound like the plot of a horror film. Um, Essentially a disease from the Ice Age. I'm going to do the film voice now. Frozen for centuries in Arctic permafrost before being released to wreak havoc on humankind. You can see why I don't get a job as voiceover artist. But the reality is, is that global warming continues to change life on our planet. That sort of horror movie plot is becoming more and more likely because scientists uh, who are studying the changing ice patterns up in Siberia have now been able to isolate specific sort of disease microbes so-called zombie viruses, as they are becoming known, and they can actually revive them in amoebas, proving their viability. And now they're warning that if we fail to adequately sort of prepare ourselves, that these frozen diseases from the past could return to cause a future pandemic. So at the moment, they're doing it in the laboratory, but the reality is it could happen in real life. But how likely is it? Well, to find out more, a little earlier, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with Jean-Michel Clavery. He is a professor emeritus of medicine at Aix-Marseille University in France. And he is the man that led a team of scientists who managed to isolate those live viruses in Siberia. And Professor Clavery started by explaining how the project came about. It all started in 2014 when we were able to resuscitate, or if you want, revive viruses from a permafrost layer that were 30,000 years old. That is basically dating around the extinction of Neanderthal. Okay. We don't try to revive dangerous viruses. We use amoebas, which are cellular organism, very simple, very distant from our own cells and the way we work in terms of evolution. And we use amoeba as a surrogate host that are infected by viruses. So we rescue viruses, and if they are still alive or infectious, they will be able to infect those amoebas in culture, and then uh, we'll be able to uh, have access to those viruses to produce them at will in the lab and really to have them as if they were uh, contemporary viruses. So basically, this was the demonstration that viruses could survive very long term in permafrost in Siberia. Since then, we've done uh, many other experiments and we've shown that this is not a rare event. Uh, This is not something that was just uh, lucky, but uh, 
basically anytime now we get a sample from permafrost from Siberia, we are able to rescue more viruses of that kind. So it is clear that viruses, because they are like seeds, they don't really have any kind of metabolism, can stay and survive in permafrost, which is a frozen soil, for extremely long time, probably more than 50,000 years. So how many of these viruses have you identified and what sort of viruses are they? Well, they are called DNA viruses. Their genome is DNA. And they are of the same type of viruses that, for example, are the smallpox virus or many other viruses that infect animals. So they are very common viruses. They are not of the same kind as, let's say, the coronavirus, which is an RNA virus but uh, there are also very pathogenic viruses. But again, we don't try to revive viruses that may be able to infect animals, vertebrates, or even humans, because we think it's very dangerous. But we use those amoeba as an indication that if viruses can survive, if amoeba viruses can survive, definitely there is no reason why other type of viruses, including some capable of infecting humans, might not survive as long. So as you say, if these viruses can survive for that amount of time, how significant could the threat to humans be? Is there any suggestion that we are at risk of these passing back to humans again? Well, the risk is always a combination of actual danger and exposure. Basically, there are sharks in Australia, but if you don't do any kind of surfing, there is no risk for you. So this is exactly what happened in the Arctic at the moment. We know now for certain that there are viruses that have survived and can survive very long time in permafrost. And if there were populations of ancient population of human or humanoids living there, and we know there have been uh, people living there, and if they got sick and if they die, well, their viruses are still there. But at the moment, there was nobody in Arctic, okay? But things are changing because of uh, global warming. The ice cap is, is melting. There is almost no ice cap on the Arctic coast sea for about six months a year now, which make those regions accessible for industrial exploitation. And the fact is that those regions are extremely rich in many goodies, in many resources, mineral resources like oil, but also diamond, very rare metals that are using for electronics. And so there will be a lot of mining in those regions. And before that, there was nobody there. But now with the mining, they will have many people coming in, okay, getting in contact with that melting permafrost. And even though, even worse, they will in fact make big holes in permafrost because the real minerals, the valuable minerals are behind the layer of permafrost, which could reach up to a kilometer deep. And a kilometer deep of permafrost corresponds to a million years of history. And we really don't know what was there a million years ago in terms of viruses and bacteria and possible pathogen. So the real danger is global warming, but not directly through the melting of permafrost, which is in fact melting, but only superficially. But the real danger is now the making possible the accessibility of Arctic resources by human. And so there will be human in contact with those layers of permafrost that we know nothing about. And this is the real danger. I won't lie, it sounds utterly terrifying. What 
is and, and can be done to mitigate this risk? Well, uh, the only thing that we can do at the moment would be to persuade all the, the countries that are involved in this to stop it. <laughs> but of course, they will not. Uh, I don't see myself asking uh, Putin to not develop uh, Siberia. Uh, the same for Alaska and, and some region in Canada. So the, the most thing we can do would be to first have a monitoring system. So we will know if a new disease is emerging in, let's say, the indigenous populations, uh, the Inuit or other of those populations, that we should be able to capture that information quickly before the first patient is sent back to a big hospital in Moscow and then we will eventually start the pandemic from, from there. So basically, we'll be, we should be able to have people monitoring the medical situation in the deep Arctic, very near the local population, very near the industrial exploitation, and eventually also have a way to put people in quarantine to, to be able to isolate those emerging disease patients in a way that we could actually examine them on the spot without, in fact, uh, sending them in, in, in populated areas. So basically, would be detecting anything new, very new, coming up and uh, being able to isolate the new patient on the spot. That is Professor Jean-Michel Claverie, a professor of Emeritus of Medicine at Aix-Marseille University in France, uh, speaking to producer Jennifer Crichton. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda just after 11.54 here on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, I'm going to have to admit something and I really don't like doing it because it basically suggests that I'm really bad at parking and there's going to be all those sort of, oh, women, they don't know how to park. But my car's quite big. Um, and I really struggle sometimes to get it in, you know, in one of those multi-storey car parks. And it's really bad in Europe. I have a good different car in, in England and it's even worse there. But, and, and actually, there's recent research that shows that it's not me. It's them. <laughs> it's my car's fault. It's too big. Um, because the parking places have stayed more or less the si same size. But our cars are getting bigger and bigger. And apparently, there's been a study on it. Apparently, they're growing at an average of 0.5 centimetres a year. And some cars are just already way too big. For example, you have your Dodge Ram. And it's 208.5 centimetres wide, which makes it 30 centimetres bigger than the smallest parking space. Then you've got all sorts of other cars, but there's also the Land Rover Range Rover Sport. Uh, that's 199 centimetres wide. So even that is too big. So ultimately, car manufacturers are increasing the size of their cars and the car parking people aren't. And, and we've left with a, a serious problem. To discuss that, we're joined now on the line by Naz Chowdhury. He's the founder of WeCashAnyCar.com. Uh, he's also a regular on Motormania um, on Saturdays right here on Dubai I 103.8. Naz, thanks so much for joining me on the line. How are you? Very well, thank you. Hi, Georgia. Uh, good to be back on the show as always. Always lovely to have you with us. Now, in Europe, it's well known that the parking places are smaller. Have they catered for our big trucks here in the UAE? Have they acknowledged the problem and do they make the parking spaces bigger, do you reckon? Well, the good news is yes. I mean, UK and Europe in general have much smaller parking spaces. I think that the legal requirement is 180 centimetres 
Now, I've done some digging, and the good news is the 2004 Code of Municipality Building and Housing Department state that parking spaces here should be at least 250 centimeters. Um, so, yes, we do have larger parking spaces here, but the problem is we also have larger cars here. I think in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a huge influx of SUVs and, of course, very popular pickups over here. So, you know, as you mentioned at the start of this uh, dialogue, you know, the average 4 by 4 you said Range Rover X5 and Dodge Ram, are going on to 200 centimeters plus. Uh, but your average parking space is 220, 230. So don't forget, you have to get in and out. You need to get the doors open. So yes, we are having a crisis here. <laughs> so the crisis persists, even though, thank you so much, by the way, for doing that research, even though our parking places here are bigger. What, why do our cars keep on getting bigger? Why do our, we as consumers feel that we need a bigger vehicle? So there's a number of reasons for this. I mean, I think everyone, there's, there's an obesity problem worldwide, right? From humans to, to automotive. Now in cars, the defense of the manufacturers is they're packed with a lot more safety items. They're packed with a lot more storage. There's a lot more uh, safety and crash um, features that need to be installed and instilled with the car. But if you just type in on a quick Google search, evolution of a three series or evolution of a Porsche, you'll see that generation after generation, these cars are just getting larger and larger. Um, so this is this this is the issue that we're facing. If you just compare the original Mini Cooper, the Mr. Bean one, compared to Mini Cooper now, it's a good 30, 40% bigger. <laughs> There's not a chance you'd get me in a Mini Cooper on the roads here. One of the reasons why we've always gone for <laughs> quite a big car is because if you're driving a Mini Cooper or one of those cute little Piaggio things, you're just going to yes. get patrolled, basically. They're yeah, just going to exactly. patrol you all over you. Exactly. <laughs> now, so, the good news is the parking spaces here are bigger. So I, I did a little check, actually. So one of the tightest ones, if uh, some of the old residents of Dubai would probably know, is Medina Jumeirah. It seems to be such a nightmare to get your car in those parking spots. They're 235 centimeters wide. Dubai Mall, a little bit more generous, on average 245 to 250 centimeters wide. But now put this into perspective. If you have a Dodge Ram, which is 208 centimetres wide, and you're going to Medina Jumeirah, that leaves less than 10 centimetres each side to open your doors. I mean, it's just not workable. I mean, if you basically, <laughs> if, you drive a Dodge, yeah, if you drive a Dodge Ram, you can't go to the Madnat. That's it. You're not going. That's then, what it... then, you get, then you get the guys who kind of steal two parking spots just to cover themselves because there's all the... There's the worry of dents and scratches if somebody opens the door and knocks you. So, you know, you get the guys that park over two spaces and then you know, nobody likes them either. But what is the solution then, right? They're just, they're just going to have to build bigger parking places. I mean, I have to go to a doctor's appointment with my son once a week. And, and I live in fear of where I have to park there. You know, they have underground parking. It's the only place to get it. It's free. So, I, so I'm sort of determined to use it. But I mean... I, I'm constantly nervous I'm going to scratch my wheels. Even as you enter the car park, the, the sort of entrance is tiny as well. Um, do you think we're ever going to see a reverse of this trend? Because, of course, big cars, terrible for the environment. We're all supposed to be becoming more so, eco-friendly. I think that's a very good question. I think the answer is yes, because what we've seen as the cars have been getting fatter is the engines have been getting smaller, right? So with the whole, like you said, the, the environmental issues and the greenness of it all, we're going to much smaller engines, we're going into hybrid cars, we're going into fully electric cars, and uh, that would dictate smaller cars as well because for fuel efficiency and things like that, the smaller the better, right? I mean, the, the new Hummer, for example, I think is about 
or tons or something like that. Like it needs to be smaller in order to be for it to be energy efficient. So I'm hoping the car size will shrink, and I'm hoping that the car parking spaces will remain the same. <laughs> It'll get easier. Naz Chowdhury, always lovely to have you on the radio. Um, you've got Motormania coming up. When's the next episode? Is it this weekend? Uh, it's not this weekend. It's the weekend coming. We've got a couple of interesting things lined up. I'm going to see uh, the new Jator T2, uh, reviewing the new BMW i5. There was a great grand picnic over the weekend on Sunday in Safa Park. Uh, Damien Reed's been all over the world in Italy as well, uh, reviewing some of the new Maseratis. It'll be a packed show uh, the following Saturday. Make sure you tune in right here on Dubai 103.8. Uh, I think it's from 10 a.m. Naz Chowdhury, great to have you on the radio. Founder of WeCashAnyCar.com, star of Motormania. This is The Agenda. On Dubai I 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Right, it is time for us to catch up on the latest sporting headlines. Editor Chris McCarty has sent through this report for us. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Thursday. And yeah, the sun is shining. Plenty of reasons to be happy today. And there's loads of live sport as well. We're going to get to the tennis, the Australian Open semi-finals for the ladies today. That first match is an absolute cracker. Corey Goff against Arena Sabalenka. That one off at 12.30. Let's start, however, with the cricket. Day one of the opening test down in Hyderabad. The first of five test matches between India and England. England into bat. Uh, they had a difficult start. They've recovered somewhat. They're back on an even keel a little at lunch. They're 108 for the loss of three wickets. Zach Crawley, Ben Duckett gone. Ravi Ashwin accounting for those wickets. Ollie Pope gone for just one. It was Jadeja who got him out. But I can tell you that Joel Root and Johnny Bairstow, they have just solidified England's innings somewhat. Ben, uh, of course, Ben Stokes, the skipper. Joel Root, he's at 18 at North out. Johnny Bairstow's hit 32 so England looking to build after lunch and put together a real good innings to put the pressure back on India, of course an Indian side without their talismanic Virat Kohli, he is missing for the first two tests due to personal reasons, so well worth keeping an eye on the cricket today I've already alluded to the fact that it is semi-finals day for the ladies in the Australian Open and Corey Goff Arena Sabalenka, that for me is the semi to keep a very close eye on Cody Goff of course US Open champion back end of last year Arena Sabalenka she is the defending champion at Down Under and I do feel that the winner of that particular semi-final will ultimately go on and take the title come Saturday as for the football the Asian Cup and the African Cup of Nations continue apace a little later tonight there was one result from England last night the EFL Cup semi-final second leg at Craven Cottage it finished Fulham 1 Liverpool 1 Liverpool had led from that first leg by two goals to one. So a 3-2 aggregate success for Jurgen Klopp's men. It's a ninth final in Jurgen Klopp's time at Anfield. That means he's averaging just over a final every single season, which is good going. They will take on Chelsea at the end of next month for the first piece of silverware in English football. Elsewhere last night, Bayern Munich. They were made to sweat a little bit by Union Berlin, but they did eventually win it by a goal to nil. That takes them to within four points of Bayer Leverkusen. 
Leverkusen at the top of the Bundesliga. Barcelona, meanwhile, knocked out of the Copa del Rey, the big cup competition over in Spain. They were beaten by Athletic Bilbao 4-2 after extra time as the pressure continues to mount on their boss, Xavi Hernandez. So that gets you bang up today at the cricket. That will be much of my focus this afternoon. The tennis semi-finals day and then, of course, loads going on in the football as well. African Cup of Nations a little later and then Asian Cup action too. Just a little word on the African Cup of Nations. Ivory Coast, the host nation, lost two of their three group games. They have squeaked in to the last 16. Results elsewhere helped them achieve just that. So, yeah, Ivory Coast have avoided the embarrassment of being a host nation to crash out at the group stages. So that gets you bang up today with all live sport. I'll be back tomorrow, Georgia. Semi-finals day at the Australian Open for the men. And, of course, day two of the cricket. Back to you. Cheers, Georgia. Chris McCarty, thank you very much for sending through that report. He'll be back with your drive time show uh, from 4pm. That is, of course, off script. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.